Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. And there it is, the sign that we are live. It is are, are we live? Friday. We are live. It we is even Friday. had a countdown. We had a countdown. It is Friday, May 5th. 2023. This is the Helping Friendly Podcast, the 40 for 40 edition. And I have just one thing to say ahead of us getting into today's show, and that is, hello, Los Angeles. We are here. <laughs> I am Brian, <laughs> Megan, RJ, who is laughing. Thank God. You know exactly what I was doing there. Thank you so much. And Jonathan, in a wonderful flannel shirt. Mm. In his amazing space where he records and does his podcasts. We're all here. It's Friday. And we have reached a critical juncture in fish history. 1996. Today we are talking about December 1st, 1996. From the Pauley Pavilion at the University of California, Los Angeles campus. Otherwise known as UCLA. <sighs> I don't know about you guys that love UCLA basketball, and that's the only reason I picked this show. No, I'm kidding. This is an awesome show. We're going to dive into it, talk about where we were all at in 1996. We're going to talk about pop music and pop culture, and then we're going to talk about fish. Before we do that, Jonathan, how you doing today, man? Uh, I'm doing. Absolutely. He's doing. He's doing. <laughs> RJ, how you doing today, man? I'm fine. Thanks. Um, I just want to say to our listeners, thank you all for, for listening to this show. And we, this week I was going through some stuff and I realized that we, as a company hit 12 million downloads of Osiris podcasts and, That's huge. and it's HF Pod is a, is a good, is a good amount of that. And so thank you everybody for listening to us for almost 10 years. 
pretty crazy. So I'm what? excited about that. Also, I think if you do enjoy what we're doing, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you can, give us the five-star review and just tell people that you love us because you probably do. And if yeah, you have well, any also negative creating, comments. Criti- criticizing our punctuation and our pronunciation of words. Uh, yeah, yeah, just do that. Whatever. <laughs> do that, definitely. But make sure you give us those five stars while you're at it. Yes, balance the scales as it were. I just want to make it clear that I'm not changing at all. You can't change (laughs) me. You cannot change this. It's not going to. We don't want you to change, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. Megan, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. My best friend from college is in town today and she's upstairs with her daughters. Yeah. Her daughter's like, can I listen to the podcast? I'm like, I don't know. I sometimes say things that I don't know if I want you to hear, but we'll see. Maybe they're listening. Plus I say if shit. They are high. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> see, we've already perfect. done it. <laughs> Few of the references are going to go over your head unless you've listened to at least 150 <laughs> yeah. fish shows. So there's kind of exactly. a, a bit of a high entry here at this point in time, but you're welcome to check in. Um, I figured she'd peter out. I mean, really, this is very boring for children. So A little is bit. That a goose but, reference? <laughs> <laughs> which which part nice joke jonathan <laughs> <laughs> so it's 1996 we have reached a critical point in fish history um my personal take on the band's history is that this is kind of where they divert from the original goals and the original path that they were on that to my ears to my brain all peaks on december 31st, 1995. Some would say the best fish show of all time. Some would say one of the greatest fish shows of all time. Some would say the greatest or one of the greatest concerts of all time. I just say yes to all of that. (laughs) Um, That show provided the band with a bit of a crossroads of what do we do now? Do we just keep chasing this perfection we've we've reached or do we start to mess with what's working and see if there's something more? And 1996 is about that messing with what has worked, see if there's something more. Um, And as a result, the year has always been received either really, really well by some fans really poorly by other fans or middle of the road by a different group of fans, which I would also say is kind of the way it's going to go for the next 25 years throughout the band's history. Um, Give or take a few, but this is a really interesting year. There's a lot to dig into. I was thinking a lot about this as I was listening to this show. I'm curious, RJ, starting with you, you were a noob at this point in time. You had seen fish a a few times, but you were really starting to get into them. What are your thoughts on 1996? both in the moment, what you recall, as well as now. Well, I just I just finished right before this recording the actual last episode of Undermine Season 4, which was about 97, but it was actually about 98 because we had to go through the island tour, which is apparently part of 97, even though that's not how it worked in terms of calendars. Like epilogue. But yeah. yeah. So I don't know. 96 to me still is like, even listening to the show, sorry, Megan, I was sort of like, eh. Fine. It's fine. I like it's that you're fine. apologizing to me about this. Okay, keep going. I just didn't want to. I just feel bad. Um, but no, I, I think there's a there's a there's a case to be made that this is a transitional year. That's the case that most people make. I think after Halloween, it does shift right to like Halloween '96. To me, is the is the play is the point where like this year 
become something different. Um, so you start to hear different things toward the end of the year based on, I think the remain in light and, and you know, who else, who knows what else, but I don't know this, this year is like not something I go back to very much. And, um, I don't know. I, I'm, I don't know now after listening to like every 97 show and talking about 97 and now the Island tour, it just, it's hard to really like meet. I think, I think starting at Halloween 96, it started to go up until, Big Cypress. All that 97 stuff, it's hard to like start listening to good music again, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> so bad. No, I, just kidding. There. But the, um, I mean, with 96, it is a weird year. Like, mm-hmm. um, yeah. there was, of course, time off when they were recording, and then the Joyous Lake show happened, and we got the tapes, and, and it was like very exciting because there was newish stuff there. And then I don't know. I think we can all agree Clifford Ball is pretty great. And uh, I'm sure there's highlights throughout the summer tour that we could get into if this was an episode on the summer tour. Um, and I, I think a lot of people will agree with what you just said, RJ, is that, you know, 96 and 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 Brian as well. 96 is is it's not bad. It's like they were I mean, they were a top of their game kind of band coming into this year. And then they were just like trying to figure out how to apply that without doing the same thing mm-hmm. that they had just mm. done. And so, and it, we'll hear it in the show and I'll talk about it totally specifically as we go through this show. But, you know, they're, uh, um, I think they, they did find a little, you know, a new match to relight the fire or light another set of some shit analogous. I don't know. I'll make up more things to say about it but you know they they found something new and exciting when they did halloween Mm -hmm. and that definitely gave them a a, you know a new head of steam or whatever um and we hear some of that here in this show that we're going to get to eventually yeah i I, all of what you guys have said i i i see truth and i i will just note here before we shift to megan who is the defender of 1996 and we have to give her like Megan's oh boy. Like total corner. Here I don't know if I, I don't know if I want to see the other side title. of 1996. Um, well, I'll just say my second appearance ever on the helping friendly podcast was in the fall of 2015. And my appearance was to talk about fall 1996 highlights. And it was something mm. I, uh, I, um, volunteered for because, at some point in 2015, the Relisten app came to my attention. I think at that point it was called uh, the Fish.in app or whatever it was, and I could suddenly listen to every single Fish show. And I started just going like random shows, and I started going with shows I'd never listened to, and I started listening to full tours. And one of the things that really hit me at that moment was how underrated fall 1996 is specifically November. And you touched on it, RJ. You touched on it, Jonathan. Something seems to happen after Halloween when the band taps into a sound that's been bouncing around their heads and they've been trying to figure out like a more democratic approach. And Trey has been figuring out, trying to figure out ways to step back in the shadows. And you start to hear throughout fall 1996, the latter part, a lot of uh, musical kind of doors opening towards what would become the uh the music they tap into with so much more ease in 1997 and so for me listening to this you hear halfway this band in 1995 that's still big booming arena rock and halfway this very um rhythmic proto-funk uh kind of 
mercurial band that is, um, you know, figuring out ways to communicate outside of just big solos and big peaks. And that mm-hmm. leads to some really, really good moments. It also leads to some confusion. And as you said, Jonathan, trying to figure out new ways to do old things, um, so, something like that, you know, trying to figure out like, how do we get to the same place of band audience connection through a different musical path? So there's a lot of interest in that. But Megan, I think you saw the most shows you've ever seen in 1996. You traveled overseas to see the band in 1996. You got a ton of experience seeing fish during this year. What are your thoughts on 1996 overall? Yeah, I saw 17 shows this year. So this is the year I saw the most fish I've ever seen in my whole life. And clearly I have a lot of attendance bias about this year, but I think this year's really fascinating because it is this post peak year, right? They have this like triumphant peak of everything they've kind of ever wanted. And when I was researching for this episode, I found this quote um, from Steve Lillywhite and when he was working with them on Billy Breathes. And I was going to read the whole quote, but I think I'm just going to center in on this one part when he says, this band can play anything, which then raises the question, well, what should they play? And mm. I feel like that's kind mm. of perfectly encapsulates like where they were. They had kind of accomplished everything they wanted to accomplish and played, they could play anything. Well, then what do you do? right? Like you have to decide where you go then. And they take six months off, except for these two little shows that they play. Not little, but, you know, Jazz Fest and another one in Bearsville or in Woodstock. And then they're recording. And you just watch this band have to rediscover themselves in a way that I think is so unique to them because they had just climbed such a huge mountain and they'd done it themselves their own way. And then it's like, where do you go? You know, they're not a band that has people telling them what to do. So they had to discover that themselves. And it's just amazing to me to kind of reflect back on the time that I spent in Europe watching them play these shows where they were just having fun and hanging out with fans and doing that, probably knowing it was the last time they were ever going to be able to do that. And that experience was it just felt so intimate. And I think that watching them then go through the fall tour, and I saw four shows on that fall tour, all of them. I saw the, some California shows and then Vegas. And the the momentum that they pick up after Halloween is incredible. And watching the energy and the emotion that they were playing with then was so different from in Europe. And And it was just, it's incredible to watch that. And you can see that they were really ignited by this Remain in Light and by this idea of instead of adding on to each other improvisationally, they could find a groove together. And I think that that was really amazing. And you hear that in moments and just, it's so cool to listen. I love listening back to the show because you can really hear it in in moments, how they're working through that, but also still finding those spots that sound like 95 and, um, finding those spots that have the precision of like 93, but then also starting to move towards that groove of 97. It's just, to me, it's really fascinating. Like it's easy to look back and talk about 95. It's easy to look back at 97 and talk about it. This is harder to talk about and it's inspiring to me. I like it. Um, <clears throat> Megan, can I just jump in and just on the sound? Cause I think there's something that happens in just ever since we did the alive again podcast with Trey, I think I've thought a lot about how he going back to like the, what he was inspired by like King Sunny Ade and Sun Ra. And like, I think like the, the use of the mini kid in 95 and 96, I think he was like kind of searching for this like polyrhythmic sound in fish mm-hmm. that like never really totally. 
landed like and i mean i had there there are great jams from like fall 95 with him on the on the mini kit and stuff but i think like remain in light like brought it all together for the first time where it was like i feel like that was what kind of like solidified this sound and then they and then i feel like that was like an accomplishment and then after that they kind of just like went off in a different direction <laughs> i feel like the use of like the mini kit was like working toward trying to get that sound and then they like got it with remain in light and then like that 11 296 cross-eyed they like perfected it and then they were like all right now we're gonna like take what we learned and move to a totally different sound um i don't know it's interesting and that was also around the time when he started like playing with other people up in burlington and led to the mm. formation of tab and um eventually but i feel like they were like looking for something and then hit it with remain and light and then kind of like took what they learned and then moved on from there and that's so hard to do you know right. like I mean, that's really hard to do. Yeah, I feel like that the idea that they found something on Halloween and then they started implementing aspects of it in their shows, but couldn't on the fly get to where we hear them get by February 1997 Mm -hmm. when shows become like you think about that Amsterdam 97 show Mm -hmm. and how that whole second set just like flows together and it's so swampy and it's dark and the jamming sounds completely different from earlier like from four months earlier i think that they needed the break at the end of 1996 to intentionally shift because i think it had it would have had to have been really hard to come off of remaining light know what really works be adapting to arenas like one of the things that defines yeah. this tour is that they're playing arenas consistently for the first time they play a ton of nba size arenas on this tour that is a totally different vibe for them compared to where they were even a year prior when they were playing a lot of theaters still and a lot of like Mm -hmm. auditoriums so there's just so much change happening that i've got to imagine at that period they're both incredibly excited and inspired by what they've discovered while also being like we can't throw everything into this because we have no idea if it's going to work Well, yeah. And Trey even says that there's like a quote from him that I wrote down. He said it was like an era was coming to an end. We realized that we had to downsize despite the fact that we were growing in terms of the number of people who were coming to see the band. We'd spread ourselves too thin. So we started cutting back. You know, it's that idea of like growth, growth, growth. And then you kind of get there and then you realize like, is this too big? Do we want to be here? You know, where can the music go? Like they were going through a lot this year. It's like numbers that'll make you lose faith in capitalism. You know what I'm talking about? Jonathan, what are your thoughts on all this? Uh, I don't know, man. In 1996, I was like uh, changing diapers. So <laughs> none of this, I'm pretty sure this year isn't very real. I, I don't think Fish actually toured. Um, they could have not toured and just like put out music regularly. And I would have. Well, they didn't tour half the year. So you're Yeah, right they didn't that. tour half the year. Uh, <laughs> Surrender the Year came out this year, also in April of this year. And uh, how rad was that? Can we just talk about that? No, we shouldn't. We should dwell on this. I, yeah, I mean, I, I think I kind of, I don't have a lot of further thoughts on 96 uh, beyond what I said earlier. I, I think that it's just a. Uh, it's it's a growing and transition year. It, it definitely misses a lot of people. I think a lot of people miss the point of what's happening here also. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it misses them. They miss it. Um, there's definitely good stuff going on. Um, and if you're an engaged listener, I think you'll find something. That point that you just made of this year misses some listeners, some listeners miss it. I feel like this is the first year in fish history where that happens. 
Yeah. And this is all yeah, coming from like sense. hindsight, but like the perception I get is that everyone was jumping on board and maybe aspects of 94 because people had, were dismayed a bit by some of the songs on hoist or, or section of the fan base was, but I mean, that happened seems, every album that was not new. Yeah. Or, so but like, this seems unusual. like the first year where it was kind of like, what's this band doing? Is this still the same band that I fell in love with, which will repeat itself every couple of years over up, up until just, even today. I know more people who dropped off in 97 than they did in 96 though. We will, we will touch on that as well next week. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. an interesting point. um, Meg, have we gotten to your corner? I feel like we need to get your perspective on where Fish was at at this point in time. I know you shared a bit. Yeah, let's do it. Um, I'll go through a little bit of it. We They played nine, 71 shows this year, so a lighter year from them. On Polestar's chart of top-grossing acts, though, they were 18th, even in a light year. And the ticket prices were lower than the acts ahead of them. So they were starting to kind of like break into that top echelon of bands that were making a lot of money. Um, You know, like we said, they took the six months off. They're going to go in in February and start recording Billy Breathes at the barn, not Trey's barn, but in Bearsville. And they're going to start by working with John Sickett and experimenting with the idea of a blob where they play one note and then they play on top of it. These parts of this music is going to become swept away and steep. Then they're going to take a break. They're going to, Trey's going to record um, Surrender to the Air with, which is the first side project that doesn't involve all of them. And then they're going to do a show in April in Jazz Fest, which they won't be invited back to because they brought so many crazy looks. But <laughs> that is really like indicative. It wasn't me, was, man. I was, I yeah, was I wasn't there either. I have, to, I have to admit, it wasn't me either. Um, but I think that's really like, this is the first time that the Grateful Dead hasn't existed this year, right? So, this that obviously impacted the scene so much and impacted venues they were able to play at moving forward, like we're going to see happen after Red Rocks later this year. Then they went back to the studio. They brought in Steve Lillywhite. And I just think it's really interesting. I was reading about Trey's thoughts about Billy Breathes. And he was saying he felt like the album was what you make when you have nothing left to prove. And I think Mm -hmm. that really speaks to like the there's like a quiet confidence and like a calm beauty to Billy Breathes that is, I think, like nothing else they've made. And it's my second favorite studio album. And I think Rift beats it out only because of nostalgia. But I love Billy Breathes. I think it's a masterpiece. And it entered the Billboard chart at number seven, which is the highest of any Fish album ever, which is pretty cool. Even um, with that so, album cover. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Saying a lot. Saying a lot. Even as hard as they tried to make it not go anywhere with Mike's face on it. Yeah. Uh, For the rest of the year, they're going to play an unannounced show in June in Woodstock. And then in July, like we've mentioned, they're going to tour Europe. So they do 18 shows out there, uh, 12 with Santana opening for them and six uh, headlining shows. And then in August, they finally play in the U.S. for the first time. They're going to play in Utah and four Red Rock shows, which I think are underrated. Maybe it's because it was my first time at Red Rocks. My only time I've ever been to Red Rocks, actually. And it was just a magical four days. But, you know, they've got the, like, mini acoustic set. There's just – there's a lot that goes on at Red Rocks. And they're going to play Alpine Valley. Two incredible shows at Deer Creek. This is when Deer Creek is going to become, like, the fish mecca. I think this is kind of when they put their stamp on it. And then end the year at Clifford Ball, which is pretty crazy. I'm not the year. Sorry, the summer. But Clifford Ball, like, that's huge, you know, the influence that that had. We all know influence not only fish but, like – Bonnaroo, Coachella probably wouldn't exist without Clifford Ball. So, 
And then we have the fall tour. So they're going to start in the Northeast, wind down the coast through the Midwest and along the West Coast and end in Vegas. And yeah, I mean, I think that this the show we're going to talk about today is perfectly placed because it's just ta- kind of captures that energy that I was talking about before that they have. And then, yeah, they're going to end two nights in Philly and two nights in Boston for their New Year's Eve run, which is going to be the last time they kind of don't play MSG for a long time. Yeah, we get that mid-tour MSG, not the not the end of yeah. the year. It's kind of that last time that MSG is just kind of like, I guess 2009, uh, you had that strange oh, right. early mm-hmm. December run. But like, aside from that, it's like the last time that MSG is kind of not seen as a capstone moment on the overall year. Big shout out to Hershey 96, uh, 814, one of the classic night before the night shows. I encourage anyone out there who has not listened to that. It is That is one of my favorite shows from this year. and mm. was number two for me when I was deciding this. Um, Ooh. Brian, sorry yes. to, to interrupt you. I'm, because yeah. I'm only here for a certain amount of time on this particular episode, can I just say something about this first set real quick? Unless Please. you are not ready to go. Jump in. No, you can, you can say this and then we'll you jump in. Your time does not corner. exist. So I found this first set to be hard to get into as it started, but I think the 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 character zero as you know at this point we hear character zero as a closer or encore and it's like okay, yeah, it's like character zero, you know. This I feel like this was really exciting. Like it it debuted in this year in ninety six, played nineteen times in six months, which is which is a lot. Um but you know I like the song live. I think most people do. It's like, you know, one of those songs that's great live, and then you listen to it back, and you're like, okay, this is the same. But I was thinking about it today. I, th- I think Trey is so good at knowing, like, what kinds of songs they needed at the moment. Like, mm. there was, even now, like, you know, Sea of Stars or About to Run or Ruby Waves. They're, like, just, like, the the kinds of songs that are kind of, like, missing or that help complement what they have. This is, like, their own kind of like loving cup or just a more straightforward guitar driven rock song than like cavern or chalk dust or some of the other rockers that had been happening up to this point. And it's just like, it was just a really smart song to throw into the mix at this point in time. Like a really, you know, straightforward rock song that really gets people hyped up and allows Trey to shred and, you know, non nonsensical lyrics for the most part, but you know, just like, it just made me think like this was a really smart thing to do with, with these lyrics and turn it into a song that really like gets the call and response and gets the crowd into it at a time when there weren't that many of those songs that existed at that point. Yeah. Not in the fish catalog. Although Mm -hmm. they played it so much. I know a lot of people who were just burnt on it for a while after this couple of years stretch that started in 96. Yeah. 96, 97, you get it very very often but it's but it it does rip it rips it's such an interesting song in their history because a year from now you're going to get this random 21 minute version of it and then as we move towards as we move towards um uh the end of 3.0 we'll get some jam versions off of it but you know it's it's kind of one of those to your point rj this is like and i didn't look into this but it just based on what I know of this band, this is one of the few times this is not a set closing or encore slot for this song. It is usually, uh, it's, it is usually capping off a set, capping off a show and here to have it in the middle of the show kind of throws you off as, as we get into it as friend of the pod, Mr. Neil Landry says, it's know my soul. 
but it rips. And um, yes, you know, let's just let's just not compare the two. How about that? All right, because my soul is one of the greatest songs ever. Is it? kicked off one of the best sets in fish history just a few weeks back um, oh my god i'm out of here really really quickly before we dive into the show here we do have to do pop culture corner to see where we, we were in the you. world at this point in time we are we are like weeks past bill clinton resoundingly winning his uh second presidential term beating mr i'm bob dole Bob Dole lost the election fair and square. Thank you, Bob Dole, for respecting democracy. We really, really appreciate that. Um, so quick rundown here. TV, we've got a unifying theme of what was popular at this point in time. Number one, ER. Number two, Seinfeld. Number three, Suddenly Susan. Number four, Friends. And number five, The Naked Truth. Jonathan, Megan, trivia time. Can you tell me what all five of those shows have in common? Television. They were all on television. You know, we're like the worst at trivia. Where they sent stuff out into all on television in 1996, but they were all from NBC. This is the peak Mm. of must see TV. Um, Neil says, I never watched them. Aside from Seinfeld, that's okay. Seinfeld came to play. Kevin Power, you guys both were right. Thank you so much. You guys will, uh, will, will, will win. I don't know something. Um, A high five at the next show we see. That's what we can give out. (laughs) Shout outs. Um, Music. I need a little bit of help with this, guys. All right, I'm going to count down from five because number one fucking rips. But there's a few I have no idea about. Excited. Number five is Keith Sweat featuring Athena Cage. Nobody. You guys familiar with this? No, I don't know what that is. Me either. Number four, Merle Bainbridge, Mouth. You guys familiar with that? No. No, no. idea. You guys up. are going to know the next three, all right? We got two divas okay. and uh, one of the greatest R&B hits of all time. Uh, number three is Celine Dion with It's All Coming Back, All Coming Back to Me Now. It's All Coming mm. Back, All Coming Back to Me Now. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> Song that was before a beautiful she wrote. Celine Dion. Just incredible impression of yeah. Celine Dion. Um, that was me impersonating her husband singing Celine Dion, her like <laughs> 95-year-old husband. Um that that is like a year before she is going to completely own the world with um My Heart Will Go On. We we haven't reached yeah, that point. Titanic yet, moment. Mm-hmm. Number two, this was a big diva song. Tony Braxton, Unbreak My Heart. Come on, you guys have to Yeah, 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 that's good, oh. yeah. I'm not going to say I mean, that. I'm not asking you to like it, Jonathan. I'm just asking you to know it, okay? I'm aware um, that it existed. <laughs> and number one, <laughs> Megan, I know that you like this song. I know that you love this song. Really? I, I know oh, this. I'm excited. It's Black Street featuring Dr. Dre, No Diggity. This is like oh, one of the oh, defining R&B hits of the mid-90s. This is a song that, like, I was... 11 at this point in time and i remember seeing music videos for songs like this and knowing that like i shouldn't be watching these but also like (laughs) i couldn't look away yeah Um, i think i have a video i posted recently of me dancing in a bathroom to this song i love this song it's it's like the best it comes on in a bar and you just have to dance and you're like yes yeah. It's it's a banger. Um all right, and then movies really quick. We got some good stuff here and we got some total dog shit. Uh no pun intended. Number five John Travolta as Michael. Remember this? He was like an angel that smoked cigarettes and hung out and said dirty words. Oh my God. I've been yeah, trying that not was to. so weird. Yeah. <laughs> Number four. I never saw it. 
I don't think I, I saw think it either. I'm pretty sure like you like the next two, Jonathan. Number four is Star Trek First Contact. Yes. Never saw it. I was in, I saw it. It was good. It was a good. It was a good follow up to uh, Generations. It was. It was solid. Um, number three, Beavis and Butthead to America. This was a formative movie for eleven year old Brian. We watched this at many sleepovers during <laughs> sleepovers. the summer of nineteen ninety six. Uh, number two, one line gives it all away. Just show me the money. I've never seen that movie. You seriously? It's a good movie. Yeah. Oh, it's a good movie. It's, it's a solid movie. It's um. No matter what, you'll fall in love with Tom Cruise by the end of it. Like you just, you just will. You can't help it. He's very charming uh, in it. Incredibly. And number one, I said that there was no pun intended. One hundred and one Dalmatians, the live action remake starring Jeff what? Daniels. Yeah. This is such trash. <laughs> I'm going to tell you the best movie I saw in 1996. It's it. the only movie I saw in 1996 aside from the Star Trek movie, uh, do it. because they don't count because they're a given. Um, it was uh, Twister. Awesome movie. Saw uh, right after my daughter was born. She was in the hospital for minor, but kind of you know ongoing medical things for a few weeks after she was born, and we were there. We were in the hospital so much, so long, overnight, all this stuff. One day, my you know I don't know if it was my parents or the other parents came in and said, "Look, you guys have to get the fuck out of here. Go away for a few hours." And so we went, and we we went like a block away. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, Bill motherfucking Paxton, he was the Ooh. man. Bill Paxton fucking guy. rules. Helen He's Hunt, so Philip good. Seymour Hoffman is in this movie. Hey, that's Hoffman. like a young Star-setted. Philip Seymour Hoffman. It yeah, is man, an unbelievable movie. No I watched this. No, he was nothing. It. I think it might have been his first movie. No, it wasn't his first because he was in. Yeah. Um, but anyway, he was young. Uh, Cameron Roy um, was in this as well. Uh, Gary Ellis was. Gary Ellis, Ooh, thank you. I'm adding, um, this has been my favorite thing about 40 for 40, not really, but one of them is that I'm getting to watch all these old movies. Like I watched Terminator, thanks to your recommendation. <laughs> it's so good. So all good. Right. I, I rewatched Twister like a year ago and it fucking really? holds up. It's actually okay, it's I'm an amazing it. movie. Oh, yeah. There's I watched no it. reason to drive a van into a tornado, but I'm here for it. I watched it a couple <laughs> years ago. I was doing a podcast um, on Bill Paxton. And so I watched so many of his movies, which oh, was a so blast. Good. And uh, mm-hmm. time RIP. He time. was so good. I just watched uh, Edge of Tomorrow, which was the latest movie I saw that I, I was aware he was in. And uh, he was quite good in that. Um, um, I, I have something I want to share with everybody before we get too far. So uh, please. there's been this little thing going on on a social media that I, I, I've been uh, amused by. Uh, and people making up songs and other stories using the uh, chat GPT and whatnot. And I was like, well, you know, HF pod really needs to get on the AI bandwagon. And so, um, you know, the next few episodes, everybody just to let you know, we're going to be entirely AI generated. We're going to be right working on the scripts with the, uh, the bot here soon. But it, it for, in the meantime, I just have a little, you know, chat generated chat, AI thing uh, to My God, discuss so this oh, 1996. Fun. Is it though? Um, uh, so here is the latest iteration of, um, you know, tell me about fish in 1996, but don't mention drug use. Cause it kept wanting to go down these weird corridors about drugs. And oh, I was like, really? I can't even read that. It's just not right. Um, so in 1996, 
Fish was a highly acclaimed American rock band that had been gaining popularity for nearly a decade. Despite their reputation for incredible live performances and improvisation, 1996 is often regarded as one of the band's weakest years. Throughout the year, Fish faced a number of challenges that impacted the quality of their music and shows. The band was experimenting with different sounds, and some fans were critical of their shift towards more electronic and techno-inspired music. Technical issues also plagued many of the performances, causing frustration for both the band and their fans. Additionally, the band was dealing with a number of personal and professional issues that further contributed to the difficulties of the year. You hear that? Got a little euphemism there for the things I told it not to say. Despite these challenges, Fish remained committed to their music and continued to tour, ultimately persevering and regaining their footing in the following years. So, uh, lesson to everybody, AI is garbage. Form your own opinions. Although it was pretty spot on for a couple of those lines. That was really I, I, good. That I was, was, was entirely wrong. wrong, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it, it was, except for where it was. Yeah. Jo- Jordan Sheldon uh, asked if you would uh, write it in the voice of uh, <laughs> young Ryan. So. <laughs> good stuff. That's good stuff. That's the next uh, thing. Um, all right. That was great. Next Let's week. dive next in. Week Let, we'll get young next Ryan week we will do that. 97 via chat GPT. One other thing I just need to mention about this date is 12-1-1996. On this date, Wayne Gretzky became the first and only NHL player to get 3,000 points in his career. The great one. Wow. On 12-1-1996. On the other side of the country, it was doing it. Um, all right. Speaking of this date, 12-1 is a pretty good date for fish. In general. Quite. In fact, mm-hmm. I would yeah. argue this might be the lower of many great shows. In fact, they played three years in a row on 12-1. And of those three, this might be the lesser, but it's still pretty good. Uh, 12-194. Awesome. 12-195 rules your face. And this one's pretty good. I'm trying to think so. of others, be honest. Uh, 12-197, they sang the national anthem in Philly. That didn't really count. <laughs> no, that doesn't work. Uh, 12-1-0-3, they've got Jeff Holdsworth coming out in Albany. Um, pretty good show. Okay, that really might be good. the lower. Yeah. <laughs> That's got a great Thunderhead, a great Stash, a great Wolfman's awesome uh, Tweezer 2001, You Enjoy Myself. There's some more. Um, it's no 12-30, but 12-1 is a very good show, I, or a very good date. I, I would argue, and I think you probably would agree with this, Jonathan, that the 95 version is the, uh, that is my peak yeah, and not so just much. based on attendance bias, although I was there. Based on that perfect solo that Trey plays in Down in the Seas, where you're like, how did you do this live? How? The fact that he skipped hydrogen <laughs> and I wasn't mad. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's all the proof you need. That's it. All right, so we are going to dive into 40 minutes into this podcast. We're going to dive into the show here. Um, 12 1996. You know what would be funny is if we just kept this conversation going until RJ got back. And then we were yeah, like, that would oh, now we should talk about this show. <laughs> We've been waiting for you, RJ. <laughs> oh, let's get into set one. Yeah, so let's this do it. Is, I'm excited. This is Pauley Pavilion, UCLA's campus. Um, so I picked this show. We all – we rotate. We all pick shows. I picked this show for um, – Two very specific reasons. The other shows I was considering, as I noted, was 81496 from Hershey, Pennsylvania. Didn't feel like it really like 
exemplified where fish was at it's just to me it's it's a really special show i also thought about 11 16 1996 from omaha megan ruined that choice because she picked a nebraska show last week and is rule here in uh, osiris land we can't celebrate nebraska two weeks in a row nope. uh, that's not I don't a write rule you picked this because of 11 17 73 right that is the other reason I picked this show is because okay, eleven good, seventeen good. seventy three is one of my favorite second sets that the dead ever played. Oh, um, it's like the it's like a mirror set. It's so beautiful how it works. Um, no, I picked the show because I remember when this show was first recommended to me. I was um, I was flying cross country and I posted onto a message board that will go unnamed and said I need a fish show to listen to on my flight. And someone said 12196. And I looked up the set list and I was like, that looks like a lot of songs. And I just don't really know if I, I, I don't know if I want to listen to a show like that. I want something a little bit more jamming. And this person was like, shut up, just download the show, listen to it, and then tell me how you feel. And I was like, okay, all right, I, I can handle that. It's a lot and of listened, songs, but it's kind of short. It's a lot of songs, but it's kind of short and it just fucking rages all the way through. And one of the things that this show does is it gives you a lot of song placements in areas that you wouldn't necessarily expect those songs to be placed, which throws off your emotions, throws off your expectations, and instead just has you surprises at every corner. And there's three very specific points that we'll talk about here, actually four, now that I'm looking at the set list, where you're like, that song doesn't belong there but holy shit it's there and it works perfectly so set one peaches and regalia into poor heart into cavern into cars trucks buses character zero the curtain into down with z's train song horse silent sample in a jar and run like an antelope um i know what i think about this set but i want to know what you guys all think about this set jonathan let's start with you what are your thoughts about it all right. Well, uh, as the resident contrarian, um, I, I think this set is uh, okay. Um, I have a couple thoughts. Um, love the peaches to open. It was kind of a kick down first in a couple years. Um, cavern early in the set. Uh, it made me think that last week, was it? Maybe two weeks? Sometime very recently, somebody noted that uh, cavern should be in somebody in the chat, I should say, noted that Cavern should be, you know, an opener. And they didn't quite yeah. open with it, but it really kind of kicks off the rest of the set. I love cars, tr trucks, buses, full stop. But also, I love it after Cavern right there. Um, it just kind of, it just feels very natural as a follow-up. Um, the disease is good. Um, maybe too compact. Um but it doesn't fall apart or anything. It's good. And, um, and then I honestly, the rest of the set just kind of like by for me, it just kind of flies by and doesn't really, uh, didn't, didn't hold me. I definitely listened to it twice. Didn't hold me. Meg, what are your thoughts? Well, so I was at this show and when you picked it, I was like, what are my memories of that show? And I have very few, which is very weird for me because like I can tell you so many moments of the European tour. I can tell you so many moments of like fall 95. And so I so actually it was called a really up, good time, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I actually called up a friend of mine who I went to college with and I was on this tour with and I was asking him like, it's so weird. I don't remember much about this. And he was like, well, it was almost 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. That's fair. But um, we drove up from Tucson um, and we drove all the way up to San Francisco 
and we have no memory of where we stayed, but um, we had, it was Thanksgiving weekend. And so we had Thanksgiving dinner in a hotel in San Francisco and raised hell there and gave everyone a lot of trouble. I think we were, we were having a lot of fun. Um, And I have really strong memories of like that dinner and being at a holiday dinner with friends and not my family felt very kind of like adult and different. And I remember that. And then we saw the Daily City show. We saw this show. And then um, we saw, uh, what was after that? Um, Whatever the next show was. I don't remember now. Um, But we saw those three shows. um, And then I went all the way back to Tucson. And then I came all the way back for Vegas four days later. So I was doing a lot of traveling at this point. But yeah, I don't remember a lot about it, which means I either had a great time or or I didn't appreciate the tweezer on the second set. I'm not really sure. But either way, it just makes me realize like how much about seeing shows back then is so different from how I see shows now. But um, Too much set, acid in the stuffing, maybe? Yeah, mm-hmm. probably, <laughs> probably a lot of those things. Uh, Peach's opener, yes. Like this is just so great. This is like a Buried Alive opener to me. I've been chasing this song. I haven't seen this song in so long. And I've been – since 1996. And I've been chasing it forever. And I love this as an opener. And they were doing that. They were like busting out songs. Like they played a Sparks in Daily City that they hadn't played in a really long time. I think they were kind of trying to think about what else they could play in different spots. Like you said, Jonathan, the Cars, Trucks, Buses, super confident when they're playing it now, which is like if you listen to it from 95 when they debuted it in the fall, it just sounds so much like slower. And this is like a really like – it has like some energy to it in a way that's really, really great. And yeah, I think that Chalk Dust after is like rip-roaring and like – Trey gives a shout out to Zappa and like says that the hometown boy and that they played, you know, he tells what Peaches is. And I think the Down With Disease has like a really nice jam with a solid peak. I love Train Song. It's like my favorite Mike song. And Horse Silent is, I think, some of the most beautiful music that Fish has ever written. And I think that when they play mm. it here, like the tension in Silent is is so incredible. And I think that they've they're really good at, even though this set, like you said, Brian, it, it does have like a lot of things in weird places. It does seem to flow okay for me. Like it wasn't, nothing was jarring at all. And I love that they're really able at this point to like slow down in a really like intentional yeah. way. And the horse silent is just, that group of music is just, it always just stops me in my tracks. And I loved it here as well. And the antelope is really great. It's, it's dark. It goes off the rails. It's really chaotic. It has this like repeated ascending rift and it peaks really nicely into the solo and super energetic. So I thought this set was good. It's like classic 96 fish. You know, like when I was seeing fish in 96, I was seeing a lot of the same songs and I didn't care. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now on Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts.
Yeah, I would um, agree on the set flow, even though I did just kind of say, well, it didn't really do a lot for me. It also didn't like hit me in the face and make me go, what? Why are they playing that? It just kind of. It's got a good flow. The whole show does. It's like easy listening fish. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) No, it's it's, the part of the reason I picked it is because this is a kind of show I, as we're going to get into in the second set, I, I would advocate for this show to get an official release because i think like a lot of 96 shows it would benefit from the soundboard quality yes yeah especially the different very take on the mix would be helpful yeah Yeah, and i i've got to imagine well i i don't want to step out on toes here but like i've got to imagine for the fish tapers who were transitioning to arenas there was a learning curve the same way that there was audio wise for the band and i mean a lot of those guys not all of them, but a lot of those guys had spent some time doing dead taping. That's uh, fair. Well, oh, that's yeah. so it's not like big rooms were new. Some rooms and some tapes, you know, went just fine. Some mm-hmm. rooms, mm-hmm. not so much. I mean, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, again, to the the local regional tapers, 93, Jerry Band played this space. So it's not like it was a completely complete unknown, mm-hmm. but maybe this space just sounds like that on, at that time. That's you true. Know, there are some arenas that just don't totally tape. work. Yeah. Yeah. Like maybe That's if total. we had some good front of boards, you know, somebody up front with the ships, uh, y'all feel free to shake those sources loose and drop them on my hard drives. That'd be great. Um, but also, yes, soundboards might uh, change a little bit of our perspective yeah. on some of these jams. Yeah. And that's, you know, for me, this show though, the the thing that attracts me to it is one of my favorite things about fish is when I hear a set where on paper, you know, there's always that discussion of what does it look like on paper versus what does it sound like in years on paper? It does not look like it works to me. And then when mm-hmm. I listen to it, it all works perfectly. And I love that dichotomy with this band sometimes where because of the energy, because of the excitement, because of the way that they're delivering these songs, it all works. Even if you wrote it out and you're like, that just, uh, we're going here and then here and then over here and what's happening. And to me, you've get this, whole segment basically from peaches through disease that is just it's it's relentless and there's there's mm-hmm. you know there's 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 fades into the next song which only builds the energy and it's not until you get to train song which is like 45 50 minutes into the set where they finally like take a breath and say hey we're here oh my god what a it's it's great to be in los angeles tonight um I love like poor heart is not a song I return to often. You get these hoots and hollers from fishmen where you just know right away they're into it. Cavern, brilliant placement character zero, similar to cavern, very, very weird placement here, but it just works perfectly. Um, the album kind of cool down into it, which was really nice. Like mm-hmm. it has that Billy breeze closing to it. It's not the full, like build up to a peak white lights and then it's over it kind of works the way that billy breeze does um disease to your point jonathan i just wrote down bright and soaring type one version there's just nothing that really stands out it's good great peak doesn't blow me away um train song horse silent the mid-90s ballads hit a little different you know there's just a little difference with hearing these songs at this point in time than it is hearing a ballad now um and then antelope i probably had the most notes about this song um I wrote an extremely fire first set has to close with an extremely fire song. Antelope in the mid 1990s is as aggressive and loud and fire as it gets. Tight, aggressive, jammy uh, arena rock. 
hyperkinetic riffage. You hear arena rock, December 95 type of, of sound creeping back in. It's what we were talking about as we were introducing this show. The sense of this band is still in 95 in some cases, but hinting towards 97. Mm-hmm. And I just wrote down that they were trying to rid themselves of this band. And I remember um, one Mm. thing I I remember from reading about this period, I I was going to go back and read aspects of the fish book, but I just didn't have time this week. But Trey talks about how during this period in time, rather than play the predicted solo, he would hide behind his amplifier and let Mike and Paige be the two musicians Mm. out front playing music. And it was just a couple moments throughout the tour that he does that. And I was thinking about like, a year from now, Antelope is going to have moments where it's going to drop into a funk start-stop groove, and it's going to completely deter and like move away from where Antelope is like supposed to go, how the song was written. And you just hear this band now not knowing any other way to play Antelope than as loud and aggressive and yeah. in your face as possible. And it works, but you also can hear that this band is like, okay, we're trying to move away from this at this point in time. So it's just really fascinating push and pull of who they were. Um, any final thoughts here on set one before we move into a set two that I have like paragraphs of notes on? I'm so excited topics. to talk about this tweezer. Let's go. Let's go. All right. Get in there. Set two. Yeah. Just listen to this set list as it, as it unfolds. So we've got tweezer into sparkle. It is simple. Direct segue into a day in the life. Reba. Swept away steep into Tweezer Reprise, into Johnny B. Good, into Slave to the Traffic Light, and an encore of Highway to Hell. And you'd be <laughs> excused if you thought that every one of those songs had an exclamation point after it, because holy shit. Um, I think that we can dive deep into a couple of these songs here. So let's just really quickly, what are your thoughts on this set as it works overall? I mean, I, I think it works. <laughs> I think it works overall. <laughs> um, I would take one song out, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but it's, uh, I th- I, yeah, I, I think that um, I, I'm into it. Meg, how about you? Yeah, it's a monster set. And I think that yeah. it's, it doesn't follow any of the kind of like tropes, like tweezer reprise should be at the very end or, you know what I mean? Or like tweezer reprise then slave, but instead they put like Johnny be good in there. And it's, they've got like, you know, day in the life doesn't usually come after simple. Like there's just all these things that don't really make sense, but it works so well. And it's just, there are just some epic versions of these songs. And I love, this is like the best of 1996 because it's like all these different parts that shouldn't really go together, but it works. And I am so excited to talk about this tweezer. You know, I don't think I've listened back to this tweezer. Like, I don't know if I ever have since I was there. And I can't believe that I don't remember being in the room for this. Like that is like just unbelievable. I didn't even remember. I found out my show count was wrong, which I think it might be in other ways too, but because I didn't even know I was at the show the night before the show. Like I, mm. I, I've kept all my ticket stubs and I didn't have that night. And my friend was like, you were there. We were all riding together. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, no. So the fact that I wasn't in the room, I don't remember being in the room for this is just like makes me want to go back and like slap myself. Be like, what are you doing? You're seeing fish in the mid nineties. Like remember every moment of this. I do remember yeah. a lot, but I don't remember this, but um, I'm really excited to talk about it. It was so fun to listen back to. Yeah, I think just from a structural standpoint, I don't know of many shows that are better mirrors of each other between set one and set two. This to me is mm. the set two version of set one, where yeah. it's 
a lot of random songs thrown in that just work in a really, really cool way. And the flow is really good. And like you said, like Johnny be good being thrown in between Tweez reprise and slave to the traffic light. Like on the one hand, it makes sense. Unnecessary. You don't need to do that. On the other hand. Yeah. Do it. It's fucking do awesome. It, it works it. so, no, so, so it. well. Don't do it. Don't do it. Um, that, honestly, Johnny that be good. Song? Yeah, that's the one. Johnny be good. Totally fine and okay when they randomly landed in summer of 95 you know it feels like it comes out of nowhere i think this song is just fish doesn't need to play this song because they have tweezer reprise because they have this tweezer Mm -hmm. because they have everything else going on in this show and other shows i i just i feel like and there's you know it disappeared from their uh repertoire for a reason i think they knew it too It's I, I don't love has, it either. Yeah. I don't mind it here, but I don't love it. It's like when the, the dead play one more Saturday night. I'm like, no. No, 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 We've uncovered some serious tension here. No, Johnny Be Good, you're right. Like, and and I I I noted this um, you know, just before we get to it. The last time it was played was 7898. So it has not been played in 25 wow, really? years. Oh, really? That's in time. crazy. Yeah. Debuts six seventeen ninety-five. Uh, mm-hmm. Between that and seven eight ninety eight, the biggest gap was fifty eight shows, uh, seven three, at, uh, all the way to twelve thirty one ninety five. So it was just not played across the fall tour until the end of the year, kind of as like a throwback to a couple big moments of the summer tour, and then it's played sporadically in ninety six ninety seven. Has a great jam version on eleven seventeen ninety seven, and then ninety eight and no more. And I think that they probably realized we're just not a blues band, and we shouldn't. Uh, yeah. We're not a blues rock. Thank band. God. Um, although my soul, my soul is always well, except with that. I mean, that's that's see, that's the thing is they have my soul, they can do everything with that song, everything, literally everything. So let's let's dive into this. (laughs) I have a lot of saying we need a 90 minute, not my soul, is really what I'm saying. Yeah, just like one set, one song, no, just no, over and over just and over and over. Do it again. a sound check just to see if to they can it. do it for ninety minutes without any change. Um, set two begins with Tweezer. Um, before, like, like, let's get into the weeds here. Um, this is a really interesting Tweezer. To me, the the closest comp I have for it is the eleven twenty seven ninety six down with Z's from Seattle, Washington, which sounds to me both of these jams sound like Baby ninety seven. It sounds like a yeah. band that is trying to figure out how to get to that point and 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 what do they need to do while still falling back on certain things that work. And those things that work work really well, but they do feel in some cases in tension with the direction that they're trying to go. Um, you can hear it from the start. There's a slow funk intro. Uh, they're they're kind of pushing themselves into this groove zone right out of their lyrics. Um, Mike immediately appears apparent he appears louder you get these sonar effects from trey they quiet things down uh page though is still lingering on the grand piano he's not playing any clav in any sort of way which would be a signature sound a year from now and trey throughout it is kind of fighting this urge to lead which is just fascinating to hear what are your guys thoughts on this tweezer and kind of where do you think this this says about where the band is at at the time so it's funny you you highlight the bit with Trey fighting the urge to lead, but one of my favorite parts is where he's not, 
and he's like singing along with his leads and it's not yes. just like little notes he's singing these riffs as he plays them and yeah it's very intense. like zeppelin-esque at that point yeah yeah so good and heavy um love that bit but also i do love the bit um where he moves to the mini kit and then page t- just whoop, takes over um, the mm-hmm. thing that he was trying to do for uh, you know a year at this point is just like it's totally working. Page moves right on front, and uh, I really like that. I think this is a really good tweezer, and um, the fact that it lands in sparkle makes it even better. Yes. All right, Ryan's not here. I'm just mostly just saying that for him. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would love to hear this as an archival release because I think there's a lot you can't like really hear as well as I want to hear, but you can just hear in the beginning that they're just in the pocket. They're like doing the, you know, they're really like feeling it right away and they're building those drops like so well. And Trey's tone is so bluesy and you can start to hear that funk coming in and there's still like a driving sense to it because it's a tweezer jam, but it starts to feel like really stretchy and it sounds like the jam sort of like breaks out and has like this life of its own. And then it gets kind of like scary and freewheeling when Trey gets on the mini kit and weird and mechanical. And I love the like rock that comes out of that. It's like this driving heavy metal and yep. Fishman's like, Hoo-ah! and it reminded Hoo-ah! me of speaking of Terminator again, it reminded me of that scene when like the robots take over and they're like driving over the like human skulls when they've like taken yeah. over earth. Yeah. And it's like this slowed down, like, evil machine sounding and there's they're all like screaming and yelling it was this tweezer is so good it's so good slowed down evil machine sounding should be on the hype sticker for this release when they put it out on (laughs) vinyl or cd for everybody and yeah i'm imagining that have you seen terminator 2 yet no i haven't watched it oh my god you need to watch it before we get to 97 98 99 because a man literally turns to liquid and can go through (laughs) buildings and walls and that is basically what fish does uh, over the next four years of their career Um, okay i'm watching that good guns and roses content great guns and roses really oh i was super into them back then too maybe i mean top five sequel of all time it's it's amazing um and linda hamilton so hot Okay, keep going. Just wait. Stop. Just wait. Yeah, I mean, yes, very, but just, it, it, yes, wow. Um, one thing I was noticing, like you talk about that crazy industrial rock peak, like seven months later, this is not a rock peak anymore. This is all groove. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. is, the, the band is moving away from this peak. And it's just fascinating to hear that push and pull. Um, the other thought I had about this jam is there's a the slowdown tweezer ending, like on a picture of Nectar, but it's very lengthy. Mm. You expect it to be like, yep the slow down ending and then they move into something, but then you check the timestamp and you're at like 18 minutes and you still have like two and a half, three (laughs) minutes to go. You get those like breaks, like the, like the howls. And it's just this like fusion of boundary pushing music and humor that like, we talked about this last week when we were recapping spring, like Jonathan mentioned how important humor is. And when it's missing, it's something mm. that's noticeable. This is an era where there's not a lot of humor missing. They are still able to tap into this on a night to night basis while jamming. Um, goes into sparkle, as you noted. Um, my note for this was just when the energy is this high, go all in on senseless bluegrass. And I also noticed that like the first verse of the song is very quiet. And if you go back yes. and listen to it, it's like purposefully totally. 
like Trey's just like, like muting the guitar and yes. he's singing the lyrics. And then when they go into the actual chorus, it like builds. It's just a really interesting use of dynamics. Love it sounds it. like almost like demented and glazed. It's less like mm. bubbly, you know, like other versions like sparkle. It's just like bubbly right away. And I was saying it feels like the robots have like mind fucked them because it's like the beginning is like really like, yeah, it's just, it's well, like lingering and they're laughing. And there's like, even the laugh and laugh part is like a little off kilter. It's like well, really that's trippy. What this show is doing very well is yeah. it's mm-hmm. tone. It's not just... Yeah. Like, oh, we laid out these songs so they'll be good together, but they maintain this tone throughout. So, you know, we get that and then we get simple, which as a song is, you know, you might as well laugh at it, uh, but um, has a really, you know, but it, it, it takes from that point, it goes into a really nice kind of blissy meltdown jam. Yeah, that is, yeah, is the thing that simple could do well at this time. Uh, especially when it wasn't after Mike's song. Um, and uh, I really enjoy it. Um, it's perfect I just, I just love, I just have to pause. I love that you've been on this podcast <laughs> for eight years now. I've been in communication with you for probably about by that time. We, we saw our first show together in uh, 2015. And I had no idea you felt this way about Simple. Of all songs, I had no idea you felt this way about Simple. It's pretty amazing. It's it's amazing. Yeah, you get a Calypso kind of breezy jam here. Mm -hmm. Second drum kit. Um, Mike Page moved kind of on beat music. Trey is moving against the solo. And then it goes into A Day in the Life, which is both bizarre and amazing placement. Um, Pretty straightforward version of the song. Just the placement of it is really, really cool. And then it fades into, and my notes on this are uh, for for Rima. What? Here? Now? (laughs) Yes, here, now. Yes. And it's beautiful. It's so pretty. There's like this sweet, playful space to it. It's just, it's beautiful. Really vibey, great peak. Like, it's beautiful, Reba. Perfect. One starts in, go ahead. Well, I was going to just cite the fish.net note on it because they, mm. uh, you know, they talk about the groove um, and how it's remarkable. They say, Trey soon breaks to solo atop a passage of really cool and stately calm, hushed and unhurried. Mike and Paige offer wonderful accents as the band continues to probe and explore, expertly modulating intensity. Trey soon breaks free, his solo extended and infused with amplified energy. You know, Sometimes these notes on the jam chart items are kind of throwaway, a little bit of detail, and sometimes they're poetry. And that is a really nice one. And I just want to call that out. Also, pretty accurate. Yeah. Very accurate. Because when they go into the Reba jam, Trey is not playing notes. He's just strumming chords. And it's very mm-hmm. rhythmic. Right. Again, this kind of push towards what we're going to hear in 97, but it builds towards this very satisfying, gorgeous peak. I feel like 96, one of the things that attracted me to 96 originally when I started listening more to the shows was it's kind of the last time that songs like Bowie, Yem, Reba can anchor a second set in the way that they could between 1990 and 1995. Whereas once you get into 97, they are when you remove some of these songs from the rotation, they're going to infuse other songs that sound vastly different from what fish sounded like beforehand and moving into later stages of their career. You're going to hear a song like Reba 
move more towards the first set and really kind of stay in the first set outside of a few very you know distinct examples this is kind of that last time that reba can be played in the middle of the second set and it is treated the same way that um everything's right will be treated 20 years later you know where you hear mm-hmm. a band as not a reference to two songs as a reference to one song but 20 years later um that you know this is a band that is still resting on these classic songs and this reba mm-hmm really, really um, benefits from the placement and from the fact that they still have 25 minutes left in the set. And so they're going to give as much as they can to this before concluding it. Yeah. And then swept away steep. I mean, I wish they used this as a landing spot after big jams more often. Like this is so beautiful. I heard this three times in 96 and then again at the Baker's Dozen. That like jammed out version on Maple oh. Night. Maple Night. Oh. oh my god, so I good. love this bit of music so much. I just, I really wish it was played more often, and it's perfectly placed here. I mean, they 30? just really just need to play it like one more time when I'm in the building, please. <laughs> yes, thirty-three oh times total. Is All that time. it? Are you serious? Yeah, I went back and I looked at it. Let me see how many times I've seen it. You've never seen it. No. And swept away is steep. They're was mean. played. 22 times in 1996, 1997, and since then only 11 times. The last time played August 28th, 2021 from the Gorge, uh, second night of the three-night run at the Gorge. Really, really good uh, Gorge show. Um, I would kill for this more. I I, I agree with you. I think I've only seen this once at SPAC 2010, and it was when they started to reintroduce the second uh, written jam segment of steep that kind of builds Mm. the latter part of that song which would ultimately peak on maple night as one of the best jams of the entire baker's dozen and one of the most stunning (sighs) moments um so you get this this kind of works this is the only real cooldown that we get in the Mm -hmm. second set this is our ballad is like 90 seconds it's kind of crazy (sighs) um and and if you think about the first set all we got was train song horse silence so like we've really had like a collective 10 minutes of the entire show being quiet, contemplative, pretty. The rest of it has been very loud, aggressive, in our face. Pretty at times, but like... Simple as a pretty low-key kind of melt in its jam. That's kind of This was all just a ploy to get you to chill. say something nice about simple, so thank you. Um, <laughs> I already said that. I'm just eating my Nailed it. Here. So this then fades... This then fades into Tweezer Reprise, which I just wrote brilliant fucking placement, throwing everyone off, which then goes into Johnny Be Good, which we talked about. Um, I'll just say one last thought here about Johnny Be Good is so many moments in this show uh, display the transition between 95 and 97 Fish, and this call just screams it to me. There's still the band leaning into energy and big song calls when five months later, none of that will matter to them. Five months later, they're going to play, you know, and I keep referring to like that Amsterdam set from February, the Amsterdam sets from the summer, the weird setless choices throughout summer 1997 on the US side, whereas they go into a song like Johnny Be Good here because... It's a classic rock song. Everyone knows it's going to up the el- the energy from the Tweezer Reprise. That's just not something they're even going to consider over the next couple of years, basically. And it's it's a very um, 
it's a very wild shift that they're undergoing. Um, and then we end the set with slave of the traffic light because we're in Los Angeles and it's going to be very hard for everyone to get back home. Uh, crowd rejoices. How I got back home. Who knows? You have no, I don't even know where I went. I don't even know where I slept. Which is crazy. You could still be in the poly pavilion right now and just living this matrix life existence. It looks like, I know it's so weird. She Jonathan associated what? early in the simple because <laughs> well, her mind needed to go somewhere else. And she well, just, everything for the past 27 <laughs> years is still, it's, it's not real. It's and in another couple ever. minutes, it'll be a day in the life. No, Neil said that, he, you know, it was probably Jägermeister and oatmeal stout. I think it may be a combination of that and maybe mm. the stuffing that Jonathan mentioned. So, yeah. <laughs> a lot of things happening stuffing. in 1996. Yeah, a lot. It's very good stuffing. That's really good. Um, Jonathan, what were your thoughts on kind of the, the the cap of this overall show? I mean, Slave is a great way to end most shows. I think pretty solid way to end this one. And Highway to Hell is awesome. And, yes. Um, so fun. You know, they, they haven't played this in, what, since 2009? 8-16-09. And, um, and I don't know if Trey feels like it conflicts with some of his other material, but they could fucking play this song again. It would be rad. Uh, what a great fun way to, uh, end a show, like, just like, you know, swap it out for where they might think, be thinking good times, bad times, just every now and then it's such a good, like, let's toss up one more rock song and get us out of here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and because of the bust out factor, it would it would shock some People fans. Um, it is interesting. I was I was noting as as I was listening back to this show and I was taking notes, um, the encore for ten twenty one ninety five, the last forty for forty show we did was also Highway to Hell. So <laughs> yeah, a of, yeah. it's a bit of a nod to a past era. This is that that bridge is being formed. So um it's a good ending to it and it's it's notable that they just packed the second set with so much music that they could only come out and play a three minute rock song. That that's a good mm-hmm. sign sometimes with fish. Um so any last thoughts that you guys have about this show after we've di- uh, dived so deep into it? Any thoughts about kind of where this sets the band up as we're moving into 1997 next week? Seems to me that it's all over. They were, they were out of ideas and mm-hmm. uh, probably going to break up for 30, 20, <laughs> 20 some years. Yeah. And then come happen. back and play an amazing that's spring I, that's, I mean, that's just, you know, without – you know, looking at what might have happened after this show, this was probably the end of the band, right? This is it. This is the end yeah, of, of something. Done, clearly. Meg, what are your thoughts? I don't know. Well, I just really appreciate getting to think about this year so much and diving into this. It's just been so fun for me and just remembering, trying to remember this year. And it was such an important year for me in my fish career. And I love thinking about where the band was this year. And I think it's amazing that they're going to take this energy they got from Halloween and this great end of fall tour and kind of just, I mean, they had a really crazy New Year's Eve run. I was there too. And it was really insane. I mean, they played like 16 candles, champagne, supernova, like really weird stuff. Um, but then the Bohemian Rhapsody, which I had like a very intense experience during, which I can tell you about another time, but <laughs> those shows are kind of weird. And then they're going to come back and like go to Europe and just, break open this whole new thing. And I just think it's such an exciting thing to think about this band that could play anything, didn't know maybe what what to play or how to play it, and then found their way out of that into this, what I think, and is my favorite year of Fish. So I'm 
fucking pumped about next week too. Yeah, no, I actually have a serious comment, um, Please. which is to state <laughs> that um, I, I really enjoy this more than I, I kind of yes. think I'm going to when I go to a 1996 show. Other than Clifford Ball, um, I have also a lot of like happy connection and memory of listening to the Joyous Lake show just because I remember mm -hmm. getting it and the excitement of the moment when that happened and they just played a little tiny club and oh my god new material so cool. while making an album and whatever all that nonsense and uh, I'm still really connected to that I think um, but uh, this is yeah it's this is a good show and I agree completely that they should look into releasing this as a good another yeah. good example of uh material from this era that uh we need a like proper recordings or soundboard recordings to supplement the audience recordings yeah i share in a lot of thoughts that you guys have i think the only thing i'd add is um you know we're about to enter what i think is the most fascinating period in the band's history and it's a period where a lot of things are going to come to a head um the all of the work, all of the practice that they have put in over the last uh, 15 years to this point in time, 14 years to this point in time, is suddenly going to result in just, kind of They're a, just going to fritter it away and just end in two-chord vamps. Yeah, I mean, some people would say that. I mean, I think it's it's going to be a release period of, of sorts where, where they've, they've worked and worked and there's been so much tension and so much focus and they're going to find that by taking their foot off the gas a little bit they're going to find a new source of magic and a new source of inspiration but also the challenge and issues of fame and fortune and mm -hmm. party and outside influences chemically induced that have been beneficial on the outside at least are going to start to show themselves in a darker way. And, you know, you think about these guys in 1996, I believe that Trey is 32 years old at this point in time, but he's been doing this since he was 18. And all these guys are right around that kind of early thirties uh, period in their lives. Their whole thirties are going to be filled with a lot of challenge and, and, and also a lot of beauty. I mean, these guys are all going to become dads and they're going to find success in a way that, you know, you ever tell your parents you have a dream and they're like, okay, cool. Have a backup plan. Like these guys didn't have a backup plan and they found as much success as anyone could have ever imagined. And then some, and then it's going to be, turn into a lot of darkness. And so for me, mm -hmm. I'm really, really excited as we look ahead over the next four or five episodes of this to just discuss kind of what all that means for this band. Yeah. Um, because it, a lot of where we are today, when we talk about fish today is a result of what is going to happen over the next couple of years. And uh, so I'm just fascinated. I'm, I'm, I loved this show. I, I encourage anyone out there who hasn't heard it, go and listen to this show. Um, but it's fascinating to, to think about where we're about to go. I thought Trey's backup plan was hockey, wasn't it? 
That might have been. Yeah, he was a pretty good hockey player. Yeah, that's a good call. Your 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 number one dream is uh, rock and roll star. Your number two dream is to uh, yeah. play in the NHL. Your number three dream is to be you know just like a mid level manager at a tech company in uh, middle of uh, New Jersey. You know, but it could have worked out a little different ways. <laughs> I feel it. I feel it. I feel it. <laughs> yeah, just like my dream was to be a third grade teacher. It's all good. It. <laughs> We're all living it out here vicariously through yeah, every exactly. Friday. Afternoon, um, which is a great conclusion here. We will be back next Friday to discuss a TBD 1996 show. And I say TBD because RJ is the one picking it, which means mm-hmm. we will get the show on Wednesday evening. So um, <laughs> if we're lucky. You- <laughs> if we're lucky. But, you know, we've all heard every 97 show. We can all talk about that That's without true. even listening. Um, thank you all for hanging out with us here. Thank you, everyone in the chat. We love you all. Um, we need to figure out a way to get a uh, almost always there uh, live show every Friday before us so that we can inherit uh, your audience because you're, you're all fucking awesome. But um, thank you to everyone who did hang out with us here. Thank you, Glenn, for hanging Thanks, here. Glenn. Steely Tom. Thanks, Tom. We're all just living the dream. That's uh, that's exactly yeah. exactly the way it is. Thank you, Came to Play. Uh, thank you, Neil. And I, I have to note really quickly because I meant to say this at the time. Uh, Heather Deacon took uh, note of us saying we couldn't do two Nebraska <laughs> shows in a row. That it was a, it was a, it was a rule. We we're totally joking. I am the biggest Nebraska defender out here as the person who drives across it multiple times a year. Beautiful state, uh, <laughs> absolutely love it. Um, so thank you Thanks, guys. Heather. Um, and we've That's got one last one here. Uh, <laughs> not Heather. Yes, Jordan. <laughs> Ethan, excuse me, excuse me, Ethan. Oh, uh, Jordan, that we got a third grade teacher that rages her face off to jam bands on the regular. That is you, Meg. You are, oh. you are killing it. Mm. Um, amazing Thanks, stuff. Guys. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you all. Have a great weekend. Listen to more Fall '96 Fish, and we will see you right back here, same place, same time, to discuss. Something, something, 1997. Does it even matter what show we're discussing? It doesn't. because it's the best year of fish. We'll be back. There it is. There it is. I'll let you (laughs) go out on that without any sort of rebuttal. See y'all. Have a great weekend. Bye, guys. Bye, y'all. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the one-hit thunder or were nothing more than a one-hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods.